You never realize how important language is until you don't know that language. Bobby and Nate just got back from Thailand last week, and it was in Thailand during my junior year of college that I learned the importance of language, mainly because I didn't know what the language was. My junior year of college, I went with 10 other guys with campus outreach um, to serve in Konkin, Thailand for six weeks in June, July of that summer. And in Thailand at that point, they were new on one of the campuses, and they were just trying to get Campus Outreach's name out there, trying to grow the ministry, trying to help students learn about that, participate in the ministry over there. And I think we were kind of the guinea pigs. Um, They're going to send 10 college guys out there to try to just meet people, to stir things up, um, to help people learn about this new ministry. And so they thought, okay, here's some college students from America. Here's some college students from Thailand. The connection should be obvious. There was just one problem. We did not speak one word of Thai. And when you don't speak one word of the language, it's very difficult to connect with people. And the Thai language is very difficult in and of itself. So here's what would happen. Every day we would get dropped off on campus, and we'd try to figure out all these different ways to connect with Thai students without actually knowing the language. So we would get a basketball, we'd go to the center of their campus, the basketball court, and we'd just start shooting. And after a while, some students would come out because they'd never seen white people before, yet alone white people on their campus. And that worked to draw a crowd, but still, we had no language, so we couldn't connect. So we'd follow them to their cafeteria to eat lunch with them and just awkwardly smile beside them, which didn't work either because it really freaked them out. (laughs) And in our most embarrassing attempt, when we got really desperate, halfway through the summer, we realized they really loved KFC and had KFC in their town. And we were from Kentucky, which is the birthplace of KFC, obviously. And so we would just go up to them and point at ourselves and say, KFC. (laughs) Thinking magically they were going to connect the dots that these students are from Kentucky and want to share with us the love of Jesus just by us saying KFC. You see, without language, you have no connection. And this is what I found is most people's experience with prayer Prayer, we have these high hopes of, but it oftentimes becomes difficult, frustrating, and even painful because it's more like language than like behavior. To learn how to pray is to learn an entirely different language. And hopefully you discovered this this summer, but prayer has primarily two languages. This summer we looked at the, the, the language of the Psalms of praise, and that's, that's one of the language God gives us. He gives us this language of praise So we can learn to have joy in the world, to have thanksgiving, to wonder at what he's doing, to be grateful, and that is such a good thing. But I didn't want us to skip over the second language that God gives us, the language of lament. This is the language he gives to us when things aren't going well. Language to answer questions like, what do you do with your pain? What do you do when you're going through life and the rug gets pulled out from underneath you? What do you do when you're going through life and it just hurts? What is my connection with God then? If you don't have a language for that, it's going to be really hard to see where God is in the midst of it. It's going to seem like he is cold and distant and everything's in the dark. But you do need to know this morning, God has given us a language for our pain. He has given us a language for our suffering. And that is the language of lament. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to help us learn how to lament in three different ways. First, he's going to tell us what lament is. Second, he's going to tell us how lament feels. And third, he's going to end with telling us why lament matters so much. And I'll go through those one by one. First, what lament is. Look back at verse 17 with the question in mind, what exactly is lament? Verse 17. 
Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. And if you don't know this story, we're really jumping right into it here. But what you do need to know, what we learned previously in John 11, is that Jesus had three really close friends in this story. He loved Lazarus, he loved Mary, and he loved Martha, and John tells us that. And one day, Lazarus became sick. And this sickness was getting worse and worse, so his sisters sent to Jesus saying, please come and help my brother. And shockingly, Jesus didn't. Jesus, instead of dropping everything and rushing to the town to be with Mary and Martha and to help Lazarus, instead he stayed where he was for two more days. And in that delay, in those two days where Jesus didn't come, Lazarus dies. And just with that fact, just with jumping into John, 7, John 11, 17, you can already start putting yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha in this story. Jesus was their friend. They knew Jesus had the power to heal because he had healed so many before him. And yet, in their mind, other things must have been more important to Jesus than their pain. And you hear that in verse 18 in Martha's response. Look at verse 18. In the town of Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Listen to her response when Jesus gets there. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you can, in that one sentence, you can feel all of her pain, all of her grief, all of her disappointment. And that's where lament starts, doesn't it? Lament always begins with a loss. And I don't know if you noticed this when we read through this the first time, but Mary and Martha, when they voice their loss, they voice it in the exact same way. Martha here in verse 21, Mary later on in verse 32. When they come to Jesus, the first thing they say is exactly the same. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary and Martha must have known the Psalms. Because that sounds awful lot like what we read in the Old Testament reading in Psalm 13. Psalm 13, 1, what Tyler just read for us, says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And that's where Mary and Martha are. And you see, life in a fallen world gives us so much of that loss. And when you experience loss from this world or suffering or sin... That loss starts to open up a painful gap that you might have recognized in Mary and Martha's lament. That gap gets bigger and bigger as the loss goes deeper and deeper. That gap being the gap between God's promises up here and our painful reality down here. That gap increasing of what we think ought to be versus what we know is. Did you hear that in Mary and Martha? In their lament, they're pleading with the promises of the Lord. Lord, if you would have been here. Yet they're dealing with the painful reality that our brother's been dead four days, which in that Jewish culture meant there was absolutely no hope for them. He is long, long gone. So I need to ask you this morning, what do you do in the gap? What do you do when God's promises are not matching up with your reality? What do you do when God's promises are not becoming true for you? When the diagnosis for cancer comes back, or you feel the betrayal of a close friend, or you look at your family and all you see is brokenness. Or you look inside your heart and see brokenness there too. What do you do with that gap between God's promises and our reality? Well, the Bible says the response to that gap is lament. 
And Mary and Martha are not perfect models of faith and suffering here. No one is outside Jesus. We have no perfect models of faith and suffering outside Jesus in the scriptures. But you know what they do do? They lament. They hold the promises of God and the sufferings of this world and they take all that pain they're experiencing and they take it right to Jesus. And that's what lament is. Lament is taking your pain to your Savior. So what might that look like? What does it look like to start not denying our pain or forgetting our pain or trying to fix our pain? But what might it look like for us to bring our pain to Jesus? That was the question that Martha Furman was asking. Martha Furman was a grief counselor, and she mostly worked with adults who had lost loved ones in their life. But she kept seeing as she did her counseling with these adults that there was one group that they were overlooking over and over and over again. The adults were getting help to process their pain and suffering, but what about the kids? The kids were often overlooked, and they had lost loved ones too. How could she help these kids start to learn how to grieve, how to express pain, how to lament? So she created a summer camp. And some of you all might have heard of this summer camp because it's loosely affiliated with the PCA, but it's Camp Braveheart at Ridgehaven Conference Center in North Carolina. And where these kids at this camp who are suffering a great loss, they can participate in normal summer activities that you would do at any camp, like rope courses and hiking, swimming and games and friendship and fun. She put all that normal stuff in there, but she also added something else. At this camp, she put activities in there to help these kids start to understand and grieve their pain. Activities like memory boxes, where they could go back through their life their life and memories with their loved one and express those memories to each other. Activities like a mud pit where they could go down in the mud pit and wrestle and have fun, but also remember that grief is really, really messy. And one of the most powerful things they do at Camp Braveheart is throughout the week, they're helping them identify all these emotions associated with loss, language that they can't understand themselves. And at the end of the week, they take a hike to a stream to pick up all these different rocks And on those rocks, they write out all the emotions they're experiencing since the loss. Emotions of grief, of pain, of frustration, of disappointment, of guilt, of anger. They put all those words on those rocks, and they collect those rocks and put them in their backpacks. And they take a long walk in silence, feeling the weight of all that grief. Some of you are feeling that weight right now the weight of all the grief of the loss that they're experiencing, all the weight of the pain that they're holding. And they walk and walk and walk until they arrive at a cross. And on that cross, there is the verse, 1 Peter 5, 7, reminding the children that you can cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. And they take that weight of grief from their backs and they put it at the cross. You see, Camp Braveheart is designed as a lament. It gives the the children a language and a permission that you can actually be in pain. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing with Mary and Martha. Jesus is about to raise their brother from the dead. But before he does, he actually gives Mary and Martha permission that you can cry. You can be in pain. So the question for you this morning is, can you? Can you cry? Can you be in pain? When you think about the loss in your life, can you allow yourself to actually grieve it? Because most people can't. 
Most times life is too busy, life is too fast, that when we start to cry, we immediately wipe it away. Or better yet, when we start to cry, we immediately apologize, right? We say, I'm sorry. We apologize for our tears. But please see in this passage that Jesus doesn't ask Mary and Martha to apologize. He allows their tears, and he allows yours as well. So instead of trying to fix your pain or forget your pain, this morning, would you take the chance to actually lament your pain? You see, lament itself doesn't take away your pain, but it does start to show you who you can take it to. And that's where we go next. We've seen what lament is. Lament is taking our pain to Jesus. Now let's look at how lament feels. What happens when we bring our lament to Jesus? Look at verse 33. Skip ahead there. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Why can you bring your laments to Jesus this morning? Because Jesus doesn't just give you permission for tears. He actually participates in your tears. In the shortest verse in all of Scripture, we get one of our greatest hopes. Jesus doesn't just see our pain. He feels it. Just so you don't think I'm crazy, listen to what John Calvin says about this verse. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't just take on our flesh. He actually took on our feelings. And Jesus feels two things in this passage. And both of these things are so important for you to see, especially if you're in a time of suffering right now. They're so important so you can see how Jesus felt. And by seeing how Jesus felt, you might be able to feel that yourself. Two emotions of Jesus in this passage. He feels very sad and he feels very angry. Look at verse 35. Again, the shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus, who is the perfect image of the invisible God, who has created all things and is going to reconcile all things, he weeps. And that word in the Greek is is strong. It's not that his eyes just watered up a little bit. It's that he shed tears. Why? Why weep for a dead man that you're about to raise from the dead? Because Jesus is actually sad. He's at his friend's funeral. His friend is lying there in a tomb. His other friends are inconsolable. And Jesus feels it more than all of them. This is why he came to take on the suffering of this world. And in that moment, Jesus feels it all and he actually cries too. And it's passages like this one where we start to understand why people say the most common emotion attributed to Jesus in the Gospels is compassion. If you read throughout the Gospels, whenever Jesus interacts with someone in pain or in need, he always responds with compassion. You see it again and again, even in Will's prayer, when Jesus looked at the, at the crowds that were harassed like sheep without a shepherd, he looked on them with compassion. You see, Jesus didn't just do acts of sympathy on this earth. He actually felt sympathy. This is what he's doing when he's taking on our pain. But Jesus isn't just sad here. The more confusing feeling that that gets all this type of notes and commentaries and things is this other emotion, this emotion of anger that you see repeated in verse 33 and 38. Verse 33, look back at it again. It says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then verse 38 again, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. 
John repeats it because he wants us to know that Jesus is angry. That word is hard to translate, deeply moved. You might even have a footnote in the ESV that, that, that says he's indignant. This word is so strong that it's also used in Greek literature to talk about horses snorting. Jesus is angry here. Why is he so angry? Some people think because it's the unbelief of the people. Why are they crying when he's just about to resurrect their friend from the dead? So he's getting angry at their unbelief. But that doesn't make sense in the context. That might make sense in verse 33, but not in verse 38. He gets so angry in verse 38 when he actually comes to the site of the tomb. So what invokes his anger? It's not unbelief. Jesus is angry at death. And not just Lazarus' death here, yes, that's true, but all of death, everything that's behind death, all the pain and suffering caused by the curse of sin, because Jesus knows more than anyone, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's why he's angry. Jesus gets righteously angry at when things are not the way it's supposed to be. And that's exactly what lament feels. Lament holds on to the fact that we're not just sad for how things are, we're angry for how things aren't. We're not just sad for the way things are, we're angry for the way things are supposed to be. This is why B.B. Warfield in his essay, The Emotional Life of Jesus, and I really recommend that if you have a chance this week to read through. But B.B. Warfield recognizes with Jesus and Lazarus here at the tomb that his feelings in this passage are just showing how perfect his love is for us. Because when you truly love someone, when you see that person hurt, two emotions rise to the surface. You are sad for the ways they are hurt, and you are super angry for the things that might have hurt them. You know this if you have a child in here. When your child hurts, you hurt. You're so sad for what makes them cry, and you're so angry for what's behind their tears, all the sin and suffering of this world. And this is why you must take your pain to Jesus, because he cares about it even more than you do. C.S. Lewis shows this vividly in his Narnia series, The Chronicles of Narnia, most uh, explicitly in The Magician's Nephew, the prequel to the whole series. If you haven't read that, you don't need to know a ton of the story to understand the, the context here. But the magician's nephew is about this young boy, Diggory, who is struggling with the disease of his mom. His mom is suffering and dying, and he's trying to figure out how to fix it, and he doesn't know how. And the more he tries to fix it, the more pain he causes everything. And toward the end of the story, he stumbles upon Aslan, the great lion, C.S. Lewis's Christ figure in the series. And I want you to read you this passage, and hopefully it helps you see how great your God cares about you. So Diggory again, whose mom is dying, Diggory slipped off the horse and found himself face to face with Aslan. He dared not look into the great eyes. Diggory had some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But he thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out to the lion, Please, please, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now, in his despair, he finally looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the lion's face was bent down near his own, and great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own 
that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. When he finally looked into the lion's eyes and saw the lion's tears, he realized the lion was actually more sorry for his mother than he was himself. And that's true. That's true of our passage, and that's true for you this morning. And that's why lament is so important. Not because lament will explain your suffering. It won't. When you lament, you will not get an answer for all your suffering. But in lament, although you don't get an explanation, you get to see a Savior entering your suffering with you. When someone comes to Jesus in pain the gospel, he never stays distant. He never casts them away. He always takes their pain upon himself. And so I'm going to ask you again, can you take your pain to Jesus this morning? Because if you do, something strange might start to happen. You might have to see that he not only cares about your pain and your suffering, he's actually come to conquer it. And that's finished there now. We've seen what lament is. We've seen how lament feels and it's anger and sadness. Now let's end with why lament matters so much to us. You all know this, especially if you suffer great deals in this life. But when you're suffering, you don't just want a shoulder to cry on. You desperately want everything to be made right. It's nice for someone to weep with you in your wrongs. It's, it's such great comfort. But more than just comfort, you want those wrongs to be made right. And this is exactly why Jesus delayed in this story. Jesus doesn't do anything unintentionally. The reason that Jesus delayed, that why when he heard the news of Lazarus' sickness, he did not come straight there until after he died. He knew what we most needed. He knows that in our pain, we need much more than comfort. We actually need resurrection. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Again, that four days, that, that sign that there is no hope left for him. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And with that question, Jesus gives us a window into everything that he's been doing. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you were going to see the glory of God? He's referencing back to verse 23 in his first conversation when he told her in her tears, your brother's going to rise again. And she responded, yeah, I know, Jesus, of course, he's going to rise the last day, speaking to the belief of the future resurrection. But she didn't realize that resurrection wasn't just some future event. Resurrection was actually a person. And that person was standing right in front of her. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he has come not just to bring us comfort, but to make all things new. You see, when you look at Jesus' miracles in the Gospels, you quickly see that Jesus' miracles are not about showing off his power, they're about showing off his story. In his miracles, we get glimpse after glimpse of what he came to do, or better said, what he came to undo. So you got Jesus' first miracle in John 2 where Jesus turns the water into wine at a wedding, undoing their chaos and undoing their sadness to prolong the joy of a wedding feast. And then here you have in John 11, his last miracle before his death and resurrection. He goes from all the way from a wedding in his first to a funeral in his last, performing it for the exact same reasons. He has not come just to weep over death. He has come to undo it altogether. You see why Jesus delayed his coming? We have to see that he delayed because what we need, we need far more than healing for our sickness. 
If he just healed Lazarus from his sickness, he would not be undoing what cripples us all. We don't need just healing from a sickness. We need resurrection from the dead. And this has been the need since Genesis 3. Since Adam and Eve sinned, they caused the wages of sin to be death. And now all the pain that you have felt or are currently feeling in this room right now is just echoes of that curse. All that pain and suffering comes from the wages of sin or death. And Jesus has now come, not just to fill in our pain, but he's going to triumph over it. Look at verse 43. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You see, Mary and Martha didn't just need comfort in their loss. They needed someone to make their loss right, to undo it altogether. And that's what you need this morning too. I heard a news story recently about this special neighborhood in Newton, Massachusetts. And this neighborhood was on the news because they were a lot closer than most. They seemed to do everything together. They all knew each other's names, hung out together, played together, feasted together. They just lived life together. That was until a new family came in and started disrupting that togetherness. You see, a husband and wife moved in, and they had a two-year-old daughter, Samantha, who was deaf. And because she was deaf, she could not communicate with the rest of the neighbors because they did not know sign language. So here you have this neighborhood who lives their life very closely together, and this two-year-old has come into that neighborhood, and because she can't communicate, they can't communicate back with her. And their next-door neighbor, Jill, was interviewed and she said during this, this process, when they were first getting to know this family, she was getting really frustrated, not at them, but that she could not connect with this little girl. So she would see her walking down the streets at night before bed, want to talk to her. She didn't understand her. She would see her playing at the playground, want to engage with her. She couldn't because she didn't have the language. So you, here's what Jill said. It was clear when our neighbors moved in that they were going to need much more than a casserole. And since Samantha couldn't learn our language, we decided to learn hers. So Jill and three other neighbors decided to take adult sign language classes at night. Soon word got around and a few more got involved, a few more got involved. That one class became two. And over time, over 40 people from that neighborhood had learned sign language so they could talk to this little girl. 40 people from that neighborhood had learned sign language so she could be brought into the life of the neighborhood and participate in all that was there. What would possess a neighborhood to do that? They loved her. They knew that she needed much more than a casserole. She needed much more than flour. She needed much more in comfort. She needed to be brought in. What would possess Jesus to suffer on our behalf? The exact same reason. Jesus learned the language of your lament so you could be brought up with him. This is what the cross and resurrection are all about. On the cross, the king of glory, our perfect savior, actually learned our language of lament. And you know that lament, that cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking all of our suffering, all of our sin, and bringing it straight to his father. And you know what? It is through those tears that Jesus actually gets to resurrection. And that's how you're going to get there too. This is why laments matter so much for you and why I am desperate for you to learn how to lament. You see, lament isn't some magical formula that if you just learn to lament, your life is going to be great. 
If you just learn how to lament, the resurrection is just right around the corner. So just lament now and you'll experience the resurrection. That's not what lament is about. Lament is about your heart. Your heart with Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' question throughout this story, what he kept coming back to? And it's the question of application for you this morning. He kept asking as he did this miracle, Mary and Martha, do you believe this? Because if you do believe this, if you can hold on with me, you will see glory. You see, Jesus is coming after their heart. And that's the purpose of lament. The purpose of lament is to connect your heart to the heart of your Savior. And just to be honest, the world has nothing to offer you in this category. The world has nothing to offer you in terms of loss and grief and pain. The world can crush you. It can crush your heart into despair, or it can harden your heart into bitterness, where you don't want to feel anything. But the world has no resurrection to offer, but Jesus does. Jesus has resurrection to offer, and in your lament, you're actually connecting your heart of suffering to his heart, and resurrection is coming. In this way, lament acts like rain on hard soil. It's softening and softening and softening your heart so the work of Jesus can actually go in. Instead of closing your heart, lament keeps your heart open. And with your heart open, you can finally see resurrection. So here's your application question this morning, or your challenge, or whatever you want to call it. My professor, Steve Brown, always said this. If you want to see resurrection, you're going to have to go to the graveyard. If you want to see resurrection, you're going to have to go to the graveyard. And so I'm asking you this week, would you go? And if you're not in pain, go with someone else. Go with someone else that's in pain. But would you take your suffering to the graveyard? Not fear it, not try to forget it, not try to fix it, but face it. Like Mary and Martha, the teacher is calling to you. Will you rise and go to him? To feel the sadness of what is, to feel the anger of what ought to be, to look at your Savior's face and to see just how much he cares and he's come to conquer it all. And what I think you'll find is this really strange reality in the Christian life that as you share with Christ in his sufferings, you'll also start to share with Christ in his resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Let's pray. Father, we we pray for open hearts. There's so much things that can harden them. And so I pray that your spirit right now would go and be tender, would be gentle, would be convicting, would be comforting, would do all the things that only your spirit can do through the power of your word. And Lord, will we be a community that weeps with each other, that cares for each other, but remembers that we don't weep without hope. And you have come as a resurrection of life. And so I pray that we would go to you. And now we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.